Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Back to Six O'Clock Church. We've got a lot to live up to now, so I'm looking forward to them. Excellent. Well, we're continuing in our series in the book of Exodus. We're looking at one of the key, if not the key, salvation moments in the Old Testament story. And today we reach a really significant point. We reach the final plague and an event called the Passover, where the firstborn of the Egyptians are killed, but the firstborn of the Israelites are saved. And it's really easy to read this story and think of it about being the Egyptians are the baddies, and so they get punished, and the Israelites are the goodies, and so they are okay. But actually, we're going to dig deep into this story, and we're going to see, when we read it in the context of the whole of the Bible, actually the message of this story is that every one of us deserves to die at the hands of God. And yet God is so loving and so gracious and so merciful that he makes a way for us all to be saved. But before we dive in, let me just recommend a couple of books to you. If you want to explore Exodus further, explore some of the themes we're talking about in this series further, these would be a great place to start. And let me just encourage you to be readers and be learners. Now, we're disciples of Jesus, aren't we? And the word disciple actually means learner. We tend to say follower. Actually, the word means learner. We're pupils of Jesus. And a big part of following Jesus is learning, understanding more about him, more about what he's done. So however you might do that, whether that's reading, whether that's listening, whether it's watching things, be a learner. So here are two books to recommend. First off is the latest book from our friend Andrew Wilson. It's called Echoes of Exodus by Andrew Wilson and Alistair Roberts. This book is basically going through lots of stories in the Bible, showing how the Exodus story is kind of, and the theme is repeated time and time again. There are loads of Exodus-shaped stories in the Bible. And recognizing how the Exodus shape is stamped onto lots of the events that God has ordained and lots of the stories that the biblical authors have written helps us to better understand the Bible, better understand the gospel, and better understand what Jesus has done for us. So that's one. The second one is this book, Dig Even Deeper, Unearthing Old Testament Treasure by Andrew Sack and Richard Aldrich. I love this book. There are loads of books that tell you what the Bible says. There are very few that tell you how to find out what the Bible says. But that's what this book does. It's like at school in maths when you're constantly told to show your working or get marked to showing your working. These guys show their working so that as we're learning what Exodus says, we're also learning how to read and understand the Bible. It's part of a series of books, all of which are worth reading. The first one, Dig Deeper, gives you a toolbox of how to read the Bible. And then in this, they're working through Exodus, applying all of those tools. It's a really easy read. It's really lighthearted. Lots of terrible jokes are actually quite funny. So really, really worth working through. Both of those are available today at the resources out in Box. I'm sure they'll sell out quickly. So make sure you get there first. So let's quickly catch up on the story. So far, we've seen in the Bible story that God created the perfect world, put humanity there, but humanity have rebelled against him. And in rebelling against him, they've broken everything. Everything's become damaged and broken. But a little bit later, God has called a man called Abraham or Abraham and made to him promises. Promises which, when they're realized, will be a restoration to how things were meant to be in the garden. And part of that promise was that they would be a big, huge, populous nation living under God. And that happens. In fact, this nation becomes so big and populous in Egypt, the Pharaoh becomes really worried about them being a threat to him, and he decides to try and wipe them out. But at that point, God hears the cries of his people. He remembers his promises to Abraham. Remember, he's got to get us back to the garden. And he begins to act. And that's when he calls Moses. 
And so far we've seen God call Moses. We've seen Moses go to Pharaoh, calling him to let his people go. And when he refuses, God sends the plagues. And last week, Paul talked to us about the nine plagues that God sends to demonstrate who he is, to show that he truly is God. And today we reach the tenth and the final plague, the climax of this story. So let's read a bit of the story in chapter 11, starting in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterwards, he will let you go from here. Verse 4. So Moses said, this is to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you, and after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. God tells Moses that this is going to be the last plague. There have been nine, and still Pharaoh hasn't let them go. This will be the last one. This plague will do the job. But why this plague? Why does God decide to do this? Why is God going to kill all of the firstborn of the Egyptians. Well, when we hear that, we're meant to remember something we've already heard in the story. It's meant to kind of flash up in our minds of, we've heard talk of firstborns before. If we go back to chapter 4, when Moses first goes back to Egypt after he's encountered God in the burning bush, God says to him, you shall go to Pharaoh. And you'll say to him, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Israel is God's firstborn. It's the people whom he has birthed into being, the people he's called together to be his people. And so it's God's firstborn son who the Egyptians are oppressing and attacking. The punishment that God is going to pull out fits the crime. And remember, earlier in the story, Pharaoh has tried to kill the the sons of the Egyptians. Again, the punishment is fitting the crime. And so God, through Moses, announces to Pharaoh that all the firstborn in the land of Egypt are going to be killed. From the very highest ranks, Pharaoh himself, down to the lowest ranks, the slave girls at the uh, grain mill, even of the castle. God himself, he says, will come and will kill them. But Israel will be protected. Not even a dog, he says, will come near and growl at them or their cattle, and they will be able to go when Pharaoh sends them out. And judging by the pattern we've seen so far, we're expecting God said it's going to happen, and now it's going to happen. Nine times we've seen God say, this plague's coming, and the plague comes, the plague happens. But that's not what happens here. There's a pause before there's the realization of what God has said will happen. And that's because the Israelites need time to do something. They've got to get involved. God tells them that they're to take a lamb, either a sheep or a goat, 
and they're to take it into their house. It's to live with them in their house for a few days, one per household or one per couple of households if they're smaller households. And then after a few days, all of the Israelites are to kill their lambs on the same night. And this is what God tells them to do, verse 7 of chapter 12. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. They're then told they're to roast the meat, they're to eat the meat. And in verse 11, you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. On all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. They kill this lamb, this little lamb that's been living in their house for four days, and they take the blood and they paint it over the door on them. And God says that when he comes in judgment, when he comes to kill the firstborns in Egypt, he will see the blood. And because he sees the blood, he will not come into the house and kill, but he will pass over so that their firstborns are saved. And we kind of think, well, what's going on here? What's with the killing? What's with the blood? What's with the odd painting? Is this some sort of magic ritual warding off evil? Surely the Israelites, they're the good guys. Why do they need to do anything to make sure they don't, their firstborn don't get killed? But you see, the thing is, that's not the Bible's view. We tend to think there are goodies and there are baddies. The goodies never do anything too bad, so they'll kind of be all right. The baddies do terrible things, so they should be punished by God. But that's not how the Bible views it. Actually, the Bible tells us there are no goodies. That outside of Jesus, actually, all of us are baddies. All of us fall short of how we should live. There's a, a standard we're meant to reach, a way God has given us to live, and all of us fail to do it. Ultimately, all of us worship stuff down here, created things, rather than worshiping the Creator. We all rebel against God. And so the message of the Bible is that we all deserve to die. And you might think, well, isn't that a bit of an overreaction? The baddies, yeah, okay, they deserve to die, but surely those of us who are pretty much on the goody side, we do the occasional odd thing wrong, but surely that doesn't deserve death. It's just a bit of an overreaction. But you see, it's not about the severity of the offense of the thing done. The thing which dictates how serious something is, is who it's done against. It's not about how big the thing we do is, it's about who we do it against. If I had a cup of water, and I was talking to you, and I just, in a moment of madness, decided to chuck it in your face, it would be a bad thing, but it wouldn't be a huge deal. Not too much would happen. If I was to do the same thing to the queen, it would be a very, very serious problem. The action is exactly the same, but the person it's done against, the person who is offended in it, is very different. And therefore, the offense is so, so much more serious. Therefore, to rebel against God, the holy God, the utterly perfect God, the uncreated creator, ruler and sustainer of all, whatever the thing we do, however small it might seem to us, is the most horrific offense we can possibly commit. And before a holy God deserves death. And you can read through the Bible and you'll find God killing people all over the place. Old Testament, New Testament, God kills people. And we get really indignant about that. We go, well, how can God do that? Or we go, well, my God isn't like that. My God wouldn't do that. But when we understand who God is, we understand the holiness of God 
and the wretchedness of us as those who rebel against him. The wonder is not that God kills some people in the Bible. The wonder is that God has not already killed every single one of us. Even the continuation of human life, every breath we leave, breathe, every beat of our heart, is an outworking of the mercy and the kindness of God. You see it in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve are told, eat from all of the trees, all these wonderful things, but don't eat from that one. That one's not good for you. Actually, eat from that one, you'll die. And they eat it, and they don't die. And you think, was God wrong? No, God's being merciful. They will die later. The punishment's going to come. Their sentence has been passed. But God, in his mercy, allows them to live a life, even though it's a very different life, they would have lived before they died. So back in Egypt, even the Israelites deserved to die because they're sinners before a holy, perfect God, and yet God has made promises to them. He's made promises to Abraham to preserve this people, to take them back to plan A, take them back to the garden. So he's got to do something. But if they deserve to die too, how can he rescue them? How can he save them without there being a terrible miscarriage of justice? And God is the just ruler of all. He cannot be, he cannot act unjustly. That's why he allows them to use a substitute. He allows them to take the lamb so that instead of their firstborn dying, the lamb dies in their place. The lamb becomes a substitute for the people. This is salvation through a substitute. And so the blood on the doorpost is not some kind of magical ritual. It's not warding anything off. It's a symbol, a a proclamation of the fact that a death has already taken place. The judgment has already been passed, that a substitute has died in place of the people in the house. And this concept of substitution is at the very heart of the Bible story, the very heart of the gospel, the good news of what God has done in sending Jesus. Our sin, our rebellion against God, deserves death. And in the Old Testament, God gives this system of sacrifices, of animals who would be substituted for the people when they sinned, all of which is designed to point down the timeline, to teach us, to prepare us for the ultimate substitute. The ultimate substitute which comes in the death of Jesus. And Paul, one of the early church leaders, explains this in his letter to the guys in Rome. In chapter 3, he tells us all have sinned, and falling short of the glory of God. All of us, we fail to meet God's standards. The glory of God is the way we're meant to live, and yet we fall short. It's like we've shot an arrow, we've completely missed the target, we've fallen short of it. And so all of us are deserving of punishment, deserving of death. And so here again, we have this same problem. How can God save and rescue people who deserve to die at his hands? How can he be just and yet spare people? Well, Paul continues... And are justified, it means giving a right legal standing, declared not guilty by his grace, his favour to those undeserving as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, as a sacrifice of atonement by his blood to be received by faith. How can God still be just and yet be merciful to sinners like you and like I? By offering Jesus his very own son, as a substitute, so that he dies and so we don't have to. 
So the wrath of God is poured out on him so it doesn't get poured out on us. Paul refers to Jesus with that funny word. He's a propitiation or he's a sacrifice of atonement. That's about appeasing God's wrath. God's wrath is his just, right, fair anger at and punishment of sin. And what Jesus does on the cross is he appeases that. God couldn't, God can't overlook sin. That would be a miscarriage of justice. It would be unjust. He can't just say, well, you know, I'll just forget that bit. I'll kind of put it under the carpet. I'll pretend it never happened. He can't do that. He has to respond. He has to act. He has to judge in order to be just. But rather than pouring out that on us, he made a way that could be poured out on him. He sent his son. He poured out on the cross upon Jesus all the wrath, the judgment, the punishment against every single sin we commit, every single bit of rebelling against God. He poured it out on the the undeserving so that we who deserve it would get what we don't deserve. And now, Paul says, by faith, we can receive forgiveness. Just as the Israelites put the blood over the door as that statement of, I trust God's promise that because the lambs died, our firstborns won't. So we trust in God's promise. We ask him to forgive us and we trust that he will forgive us because of the substitute of Jesus who died for us. This is salvation through a substitute. This is the gospel, the very, very heart of it. And for many of us here, this is something we've already experienced. We've already responded to Jesus. Jesus has become our substitute. And so it's something for us to keep coming back to, something for us to rejoicing, something for us to celebrating. For some of us here, this might be news to us. The fact that God is deserved or you deserve to be killed by God will be a shock to you, a new thing. Well, friends, hear the good news. Hear the good news that God has sent Jesus to be your substitute. If you're not a Christian, you deserve to die at the hands of God because you rebelled against him. But God so loves you that he wants to have mercy upon you. He wants to save and rescue you, not because of anything you do. You can't do anything, but because he sent his son Jesus to die in your place because of his love for you. And purely by trusting in that promise, you can receive that forgiveness. Friend, if that's you here today, don't leave without finding out more. Come and find some of the guys who will be at the front later. They'll be so happy to talk with you, to tell you more. If you want to, to pray with you. You can leave here today knowing that Jesus is your substitute. And you have been saved by a substitute. So the Passover shows us that salvation is by substitute. It's one of the many ways that God kind of prepared us, trained us to understand what he's doing in Jesus. But that's not the only thing that happens in these chapters. If you read through Exodus 11 through to 13, you'll see all the stuff about the Passover, all the story we've already heard, but there's also a lot more going on in there. Interwoven into these chapters is a load of stuff about the importance of remembering salvation. This Passover is such a key event. It's foundational to Israel's life with God that God wants them to keep remembering it day after day after day, to keep remembering it at the forefront of their minds so that they can remember it and be shaped by it. And these chapters of Exodus give us three ways that the Israelites were told to do that. And remembering is a really key biblical theme. Throughout Old Testament and New Testament, you'll find the idea of remembering what God has done. 
remembering how he's acted is a recurring motif that comes up time and time again. We're called to look forward, to look down the timeline, but also we're called to keep one eye looking back, remembering what God has done. And as we do that, it shapes our view of God. It helps us understand what he's truly like. It shapes our view of ourself and what he's done for us. It will shape our view of the world and of our expectations for the future and what God is going to do. So in the Old Testament, you see things like they set up stones to remind themselves. They celebrate festivals. They have different customs. They sing songs. They tell stories, all to keep remembering what God has done for them. And here in Exodus, around the Passover, there are three different things that God tells them to do. First off, he tells them to consecrate their firstborn to God. He says in chapter 13, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, Wherever it is first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. To consecrate means to dedicate to, or to uh, kind of set apart for. He's saying they're to be set apart for God because actually they already belong to God. They belong to God because he had spared and saved the firstborn in Egypt. And therefore, because he graciously provided a way for that to take place, they are to belong to God and to be consecrated to him. And verses 10 and 11 explain to us what that will look like. The clean animals are to be sacrificed to God. They're to be killed as a way of giving them back to God. But unclean animals, which can't be sacrificed, and the human sons who are born to the Israelites as their firstborn, they're to buy them back. They're to pay money into the temple in order to purchase them back from God. That's what's happening in Luke 2. When Mary and Joseph take Jesus to the temple, there's some other stuff going on, but part of what they're doing is they're redeeming their firstborn son. And the text in uh, chapter 13 of Exodus tells us the reason they do this is that it's an educative thing. It's about teaching them, reminding them. They're told that when their sons ask them, why are you doing this? Why are you buying me back? They're to say, verse 14, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of men and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. The reason they do this is because of God's saving of the firstborn in Egypt. That means that every time a firstborn son was born in Israel, or every time a firstborn of one of their cattle, one of their herds was born, they would go through this ceremony which would remind them of God's salvation. Time after time after time, all over Israel, there was a constant reminder that God had worked salvation for them in sparing the firstborn through the substitute of the lamb. They're told to remember salvation. Another way they're told to do that in these chapters is a feast, a feast of the unleavened bread. They're to celebrate it once a year, at the same time every year, for seven days. And for the whole of those seven days, they're not to eat or to touch any leaven, which is kind of yeast, stuff that makes dough rise. They actually get it all out of their house, all out of the camp where they're living. And for seven days, they're kind of completely free of it. And on the first day and the last day, they have big celebrations together and they don't do any work on those days. And again, it's about remembering. Again, they're told when their son asks what's going on, what's with the unleavened bread, they're to say, it's because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. 
And earlier, God has said, you should observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread, for on this very day, I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. This is about remembering. It's a reminder. When they ate the Passover meal, they were told to eat it with unleavened bread. And when they actually leave Egypt, when Pharaoh says, go, get out, he's now in such a hurry for them to leave, they don't have time to let their dough rise. They have to grab it and run. As they celebrate this festival, they're remembering the way that God rescued them. They're remembering the salvation that he worked for them. And then the final one of the three things God gives them in these chapters is the Passover festival. Again, it's something they do every year. It stood right at the head of the festival of unleavened bread, so often they're kind of combined in the Bible. They're to sacrifice a lamb again and to eat it, the same kind of meal they ate in Egypt. And once again, it's about remembering. They're to tell their children it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. Year after year after year, they were to eat this meal together and remember the act of salvation that God had worked for them. It's interesting to note that if you read through the Old Testament, Israel seemed to have done this very, very infrequently. They did it for the next few years, and then there's pretty much no reference to it till you get to the end of the Old Testament. At the time of the exile, when everything's gone completely wrong, it's actually pointed out that they tried to revive the celebration of Passover because it hadn't been done for generations and generations. And I think it's an interesting question to ask is, is one of the reasons that Israel failed to live God's way, that it ended up in exile and right mess, because they didn't do the things that God told them to do to keep remembering salvation. Remembering is vital to the life or to life with God. That was true for them back there. God's making that really clear in how he's interweaved that material in the story of the Passover. But it's also really vital for us today. We need to be people who keep remembering salvation. Keep remembering what God has done for us in Jesus and his death as our Passover lamb. Again, it's going to shape our view of God, of what he's like, our view of ourselves, who he's made us to be, our, our view of the world, how things work, and our view of the future. And if you read through the New Testament, you'll find constantly the authors are looking back to the death of Jesus. It stands as the kind of pivotal moment they keep referring to, keep thinking on, keep looking back to. We need to keep doing the same. And so it's a great question to ask yourself, to think about, even right now in your head, how in your life can you be actively remembering what God has done in Jesus? What kind of things will work for you so that constantly at the forefront of your mind is a remembering of, an understanding of, a, a thanksgiving for, a celebration of what God has won for you? For me, there are different things I do. I'm a kind of very thinky person, so words tend to work for me. So there are certain songs which are so packed full of truth about what God has done in Jesus that I know they will help me to remember and respond to what he's done. So I will use those. I'll sing through them or sometimes I'll pray through them. I'll pray through the words of certain songs, helping me to give thanks to God and remember what he's done. 
There are some specific passages of Scripture I go back to regularly. And again, often what I'll do there is I'll pray through, step by step, thanking God for each of the elements. And I'm both responding and thanking, but as I'm doing it, it's kind of getting it deep down into my soul. Or sometimes I'll kind of be living in a passage of Scripture for a while. So I've been living in Romans 5, 1 to 2 for a little while. It's just constantly in my mind. I'm constantly praying it, constantly going back to myself. And it's working deeper and deeper into my heart. So I'm remembering salvation more and more. For you, it might be music. Listening to something or playing something, it might be something more artistic. Then in reflecting on a piece of art or making your own works of art, you engage with this. It might be there's some sort of activity which is going to help you to do that. Whatever it might be for you, be deliberate about doing it and do it regularly. We need to remember salvation. But there are also a couple of reminders that God has given for all of us. Things he wants all followers of Jesus to do to keep remembering salvation. The first of those is baptism. That's a one-time thing, but as we look at other people get baptized, again, we are reminded. Baptism in water is this picture of dying with Christ, being in the grave with him, but then being raised to newness of life with him. It's a visible reminder of salvation to the people of God. But also we have the bread and the wine. The bread and wine are a kind of transformation of the Passover into a Christian key. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was celebrating the Passover with his friends. They were eating that meal, remembering that moment back in their past history. And it's in that context that he institutes a new way of remembering salvation. A new way of remembering his death, he'll die the next day, and the salvation he won. And he's worked for us in doing that. Here's what Jesus says in Luke 22. He's reclining with the disciples, eating this Passover meal. He says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Maybe the band could start coming up at this point. Taking the bread and the wine is a key way that Jesus has given us to remember what he has done. To keep looking back, to keep it at the forefront of our minds. As we take the bread, it reminds us of Jesus' body broken for us on the cross. Of the death he died in our place as our substitute. Just as the lambs, their body was broken as they were sacrificed for the Israelites and they became a substitute them. As we take the wine, we're reminded of the blood of Jesus, his very life poured out for us, given for us as a substitute on the cross. And we remember the fact that Jesus has taken the blood into the heavenly holy of holies, into where God himself is, so that when God sees the blood, he will pass over us when he comes to judge, just as when God saw the blood on the doorpost, he passed over them when he came to judge. The blood is what stands over us so that when God comes in judgment, we will be able to stand up tall and remember our substitute who paid the price for us. Taking the bread and wine helps us to 
remember what God has done. It helps us to claim it for ourselves. This happened and this applies to me. And it helps us to give thanks. Sometimes we call it the Eucharist. It just means the Thanksgiving meal because Jesus gave thanks as he did it. We give thanks through taking the bread and the wine. And that's what we're going to do together now. We're going to start by singing together, worshipping together. Just to give a moment for us to connect with this truth, to remember salvation, to remember what Jesus has done for us. And then once we've done that, Sam will come, will lead us as we take the bread and the wine together. If you're a Christian here today, use this as a chance to remember salvation through a substitute. To think on the price that Jesus paid, to think on the guarantee of forgiveness and salvation that he has won for you. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, use this as an opportunity to think on all that we've heard today. Maybe you think, I know actually that I'm deserving of punishment. I know that I need forgiveness. I need that substitute to be for me. Friend, you can respond to Jesus in your heart this morning. We don't need to give you special words to say, just respond to Jesus in your heart this morning and grab someone at the end and talk to them. Shall we stand as we worship? Let me pray and then I'll hand to the band.